0: J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards.
1: Only at Sleep Number stores or
0: sleepnumber.com.
1: Our 79-year-old president has COVID. The lead starts right now. President Biden testing positive for COVID, but insisting he's doing fine. The White House just releasing new details about his symptoms coming up. Plus, tonight, the January 6th Select House Committee returns to prime time and delivers its last scheduled hearing against former President Trump, accusing him of failing to act while watching the violence unfold in real time in the White House dining room. This, as we're also learning, they have never before seen video of Trump taping that video on January Six and struggling to condemn the violence. And the blistering heat baking over 100 million people in the U.S., countless others abroad, and there is still no let-up in sight. Welcome to Lead, I'm Jake Tapper. We start with the national lead. President Biden tested positive for COVID. The 79-year-old president, who is fully vaccinated and received his second booster shot in March just released a video saying that he
2: is doing fine. Symptoms are mild, and, uh, and I really appreciate your inquiries and your concerns, and I'm doing well.
1: White House COVID coordinator Dr. Ashish Jha says that President Biden is breathing well and his oxygen level is normal. The president is now isolating inside the White House residence for the next five days, we're told, and taking the COVID antiviral drug Paxlovid, which is a drug recommended For people such as President Biden, who are at higher risk of developing severe COVID because of either their age or underlying medical conditions. CNN's MJ Lee joins us now live from the White House. MJ, the press secretary and the White House COVID coordinator, just wrapped up a press conference a short while ago. Uh, What did they have to say about the president's condition?
3: Well,
4: Jake, it is very clear that the White House wants to emphasize two things right now. One is that the president is feeling just fine. And two is that the president is continuing to do his job even as he is isolating inside the White House. Both the White House press secretary and the COVID coordinator just briefed reporters in a lengthy briefing. And they basically said that they have every reason to believe that the president is going to come out of this just fine. But of course, there is no ignoring the fact that the president is 79 years old.
2: Hey, folks, guess you heard this morning I tested positive for COVID.
4: More than two full years into the pandemic, President Biden double testing positive double. for COVID.
2: Symptoms are mild, and, uh, and I really appreciate your inquiries and your concerns. But I'm doing well.
4: The president's physician saying in a letter that Biden is only experiencing mild symptoms, including a runny nose, fatigue, and the occasional dry cough, and that he is taking the antiviral COVID medication, Paxlovid.
5: The goal of Paxlovid is to keep people from getting seriously ill. Because the president is fully vaccinated, double boosted, his risk of serious illness is dramatically lower.
4: The president promising that even from his isolation in the White House residence, he is keeping busy.
2: Get a lot of work done going to continue to get it done
4: the white house immediately scrambling to conduct contact tracing and also confirming that vice president kamala harris who last saw the president on tuesday has tested negative
6: he is in good spirits he is feeling well he is doing well the positive
4: COVID test coming one day after a trip to massachusetts throughout the day biden had been in close proximity to supporters Numerous White House aides, members of Congress and other elected officials, and members of the White House press corps traveling with the president on Air Force One.
7: Cases are going up. What should the country be doing right
2: now? Getting vaccinated.
4: As the COVID pandemic entered its third year... White House officials had increasingly started raising the possibility of the president eventually getting COVID. It is certainly possible that he will test positive for COVID. Like anyone else, uh, the president may at some point uh, test positive for COVID. In recent weeks, the president had traveled abroad to Germany, Spain, Israel and Saudi Arabia and participated in many crowded indoor events at the White House. Biden now the second U.S. president to test positive for COVID while in office. Former President Donald Trump got COVID in October of 2020, well before vaccines were available and spent three nights at Walter Reed, the Biden White House promising transparency and regular updates on the president's condition. We were transparent. Uh, I got the letter from uh, we put out a statement as soon as uh, we we uh, did the test and were able to uh, put out the information. We will have daily updates from his doctor uh, on
6: uh, on his status.
4: Now, there are real flashbacks right now to when former President Donald Trump got COVID and he ended up spending several days at Walter Reed. But when Dr. Xi jaw was asked about that possibility at this briefing just now, uh, he dismissed that as purely a hypothetical and that basically that doesn't seem like a real possibility, given that the president right now is feeling just fine. But, Jake, I'll tell you, I have traveled abroad with the president recently, obviously covered many of these very crowded East Room events at the White House. When the White House was asked asked about all of these events and schedules and travels that the president has had recently, they said that they have no regrets and that they have been preparing for the possibility of the president getting COVID for a number of months now, Jake.
1: Yeah, he's gotten full vaccinations, two shots, and then two boosters uh, since. And he's physically in a better place because of that than, than Donald Trump was. MJ Lee. Uh, at the White House. Thanks. I, I want to bring CNN chief medical correspondent Dr. Sanjay Gupta into the conversation. With Sanjay, President Biden is fully vaccinated and double boosted, as I noted. That, obviously, that's the best protection against serious illness. He's also taking Paxlovid. He's almost eighty, though. He'll turn eighty in November. W- what's your level of concern for his health?
5: Well, you know, I think that um, if, if this were my parents calling me and they're in the same position in terms of their vaccination status and they said they got COVID, I'd be I'd be worried. They're around the same age as the president. I'd be worried. I, I think the vaccines and stuff work really well, but I think uh, the idea of making sure uh, they're not developing new symptoms, spiking a fever, uh, I would ha- you know get them an oxygen monitor so they're just making sure their oxygenation doesn't drop. So the, the vaccines are really, really protective, but his age is a, is a risk factor here. So uh, optimistic, but, but being careful. People often ask, Jake, how much of a difference does it make? Being vaccinated, boosted versus not. Here's some data we can show you, which, which basically says if you look now, well, at least in May of 2022, if you were vaccinated and boosted, you were about 29 times less likely to die of this disease as compared to unvaccinated. So that, that at least gives you some context in terms of putting a number on, on the level of protection. It's not perfect, but it's really good.
1: The White House says that President Biden is isolating, is being treated with the antiviral medication Paxlovid. What does that treatment entail?
5: So it's it's a five-day treatment. It's an oral pill, so something you just take by mouth. You don't have to be in the hospital or a clinic for that. Um, most of the data really around this, uh, at least recent data, comes from Israel. It was a 109,000-person study right at the beginning of Omicron. So it gives you an idea of what how this responded to Omicron. And what you find is in people who are highest risk because of age, people over the age of 65, you had a significant benefit when it came to Hospitalization, severe illness, as well as death. Um, you know, sixty percent, sixty-seven percent. I think reduction in likelihood of severe illness, and close to eighty percent reduction. I think when it came to to death. So it's it's a really it's a really effective medication. You have to start it early. That's one of the keys. People get it right at the time that they start developing symptoms have the most benefit.
1: Uh, what uh, possible side effects are there from Paxlovid? I've, I've, I know of. Um, uh, a tinny or metallic taste in your mouth uh, being one of them. Is there anything more serious?
5: I think that the two big things here are there are some medications that you probably need to stop if you are taking Paxlovid. Um, and, And the presence on two of those medications, one is to lower cholesterol, statin drug, and the other one is a type of blood thinner. So at least for the time that he's on Paxlovid, uh, he's not to take those medications. And they were asked about that. And, you know, for a few days, it shouldn't be a problem for him not to take the medications. The second thing is something called rebound, Jake. So you do fine. You test negative. Uh, and then a few days later, you test positive again and even develop symptoms. If you look at the data, that happens around 6 7% of the time. But it did happen to Dr. Fauci. You may remember, Jake. He, he had that exact Paxlovid rebound. It's going to be important with the president probably to be tested every day for a few days after he tests negative to make sure he doesn't develop that rebound.
1: The president released a video on Twitter this afternoon explaining that he is continuing to work from the residents. He's feeling fine. How long do you think he needs to continue to isolate before he can resume a normal work schedule? Just as soon as he tests negative?
5: Yeah, that, 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 that's right. I mean, that's what the White House's plan is here. And it's interesting because it's a little different than what the CDC says. The CDC says, day five, regardless of test, you don't need to to, uh, continue to isolate. So they're saying that they're taking it a step further, waiting for a negative test, which could be a while. You know, it's interesting, five days, um, there may be people who clear virus and test negative within five days. But if you look at some of the recent papers with regard to these new variants, nine days, uh, you know, is also the case for some people to continue to test positive. So we'll see how long it takes for him.
1: So we saw the president uh, at an event, an outdoor event in Massachusetts yesterday. He was shaking hands. He was in close contact with lawmakers and others who attended the speech. We're we're also seeing a surge in infections across the U.S. from this rapidly spreading and highly infectious BA5 subvariant. Should people in vulnerable groups such as President Biden be wearing masks more often, even outdoors, uh, if they are in close proximity to other people, you know, within a foot or two, given how much spread there is in the community?
5: Well, Jake, I, I would invoke sort of my, my own parents again, because as a doctor, people often ask, what if it were your parents or what if it was your family member? Um, I would, my parents on their own have been wearing masks. They go into crowded indoor settings, high filtration you know, masks, uh, N95 or KN95 masks. And I, I, I uh, think that that's a good idea. I mean, I think that there's still a lot of vulnerable people out there. And even if you're vaccinated and boosted, you could still get sick. I mean, you know, just because you're not getting severely ill, as one virologist said to me, it could still be one of the worst viral illnesses of your life. Just because you don't get hospitalized doesn't mean it's not significant. The other thing, Jake, is that the question is, how likely are you to come in contact with virus if you're out there? If you look at the community transmission maps of the United States, They've, they looked yellow for a, a long time, uh, but are increasingly getting red. But if you look at this map, the transmission map, uh, that's, a, that's a lot of virus that's spreading out there. Like, Jake, where you live, on the, on the community map, it would say that you're in the yellow district. But with transmission, you're in red, which means people in D.C. should probably be wearing masks indoors.
1: All right. Well, I'm looking at a bunch of masks right here among my crew members. Dr. Sanjay Gupta, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Coming up next, yeah. the January 6 hearings return to time, and the committee ready with new evidence they claim makes the case that Trump violated his oath of office. And Steve Bannon's criminal contempt of Congress trial now heading to the jury after Bannon's defense decided to call no witnesses. Why? In our politics lead, we're just hours away from the last scheduled hearing from the January 6th Select House Committee. Of course, you can catch CNN's own live coverage beginning at 7 p.m. Eastern this evening. The committee plans to detail the extent of Donald Trump's inaction for three hours and seven minutes as his supporters and others, far-right extremists, ransack the Capitol. We will also hear live testimony, we're told, from former Deputy National Security Advisor Matthew Pottinger and former Deputy Press Secretary Sarah Matthews. Both of them quit the White House that day in the wake of the attack. Plus, we will hear, we're told, never seen before outtakes from a video Trump recorded the day after the insurrection. Sources tell CNN that the tapes show Trump having extreme difficulty recording the speech and refusing to admit the election was not stolen. As CNN's Ryan Nobles reports, tonight will be a critical night for the committee to make its case.
8: Mr. Aye. The January 6th Select Committee is ready for another primetime event setting the stage for what may be their most important hearing
9: yet. It's pretty simple. He was doing nothing to actually stop the riot.
8: The committee, led tonight by military veterans Elaine Luria and Adam Kinzinger, plan to outline in specificity what they describe as Donald Trump's dereliction of duty. Kinzinger teasing the hearing with clips of White House aides, saying Trump watched the riot unfold on TV.
10: Do you know whether... He was watching TV in the dining room when uh, you talked to him on January
6: 6. It's my understanding he was watching television. The hearing is expected to reveal
8: clips of testimony from witnesses we have never seen before, like Trump's executive assistant, Molly Michael, in addition to live testimony from former aides Sarah Matthews and Matthew Pottinger, who both quit after the insurrection. The president didn't do anything, and we're going to fill those blanks in. And if the American people watch this, particularly I say this to my fellow Republicans, watch this with an open mind, and is this the kind of strong leader you really think you deserve? The committee will also show outtakes of Trump's video message to the nation the day after the riot.
11: We have just been through an intense election, and emotions are
8: high. But now tempers must be cooled and calm restored." A short, three-minute address, designed at the time to unify the country. But select committee members say the outtakes show Trump struggling to condemn the violence and looking for ways to excuse his supporters' conduct.
11: It will be significant in terms of what the president was willing to say and what he wasn't willing to say. Uh, and it's also, uh, of course, a very significant how long it took him to say anything, that is, anything that wasn't just adding fuel to the fire
8: all this as the investigation into Trump and his allies continues on many fronts his chief of staff Mark Meadows who is not charged with contempt despite defying the committee subpoena spotted just steps from the Capitol campus this morning and refusing to comment on if he's been contacted by criminal investigators related to his role in the January 6th riot or attempts to overturn the election Have you heard, um, the of
12: since the 6th I don't comment on, on, anything. on, so on January
13: 6.
8: And there is no doubt that the committee has been building toward tonight. First, they laid out the case that Donald Trump peddled false claims about the election narrative, despite knowing that he lost. And then he used that lie to fuel all of his supporters to come to Washington on January 6th. And then, as his supporters attacked the Capitol, the committee plans to show tonight exactly what he was up to. And Jake, that was not very much.
1: Yeah, Ryan Nobles reporting live on Capitol Hill. Thanks so much. This just into CNN, the inspector general for the Department of Homeland Security has informed the U.S. Secret Service that they're investigating the missing text messages from January 5th and 6th. In a letter, the watchdog calls this an ongoing criminal investigation. This comes as the inspector general has also directed the U.S. Secret Service to stop its own internal investigation into what happened to those texts. CNN's law enforcement correspondent Whitney Wild joins us now live. Whitney, how big of a deal is this investigation? It's criminal.
14: This is a big deal. This is certainly uh, complicating matters for the Secret Service in the short term because, Jake, as you know, they have this House Select subpoena that has directed them to conduct an internal investigation. Meanwhile, the Inspector General came back to them today to say, in effect, stop what you're doing. Here's a quote from that letter To ensure the integrity of our investigation, the Secret Service must not engage in any further investigative activities regarding the collection and preservation of the evidence uh, that they are discussing earlier in this letter, and that includes. Includes immediately refraining from interviewing potential witnesses, collecting devices, or taking any other action that would interfere, Jake, and this is crucial, with an ongoing criminal investigation. Again, this letter adding to this growing tension between the Secret Service and the Department of Homeland Security's Inspector General over the potentially missing text messages, again, those are being sought by other oversight committees... Further, the National Archives has also directed the Secret Service to conduct an internal investigation to figure out what happened to those text messages. However, at this point, uh, the Secret Service is trying to figure out, in effect, which oversight body to listen to. Uh, so this is a huge deal. The Secret Service telling us, Jake, that they are not aware of a specific criminal allegation that's been directed at them. Uh, they are, in this moment, trying to satisfy all of these investigative bodies, including the inspector general. Back
1: to you. All right, Whitney Weil, thank you so much. Joining us live to discuss is all all of this, uh, is uh, Donald Trump's former acting White House chief of staff, Mick Mulvaney. He later served as special envoy to Northern Ireland. He resigned from the post in the wake of the Capitol attack. And and let's let's start with that, because you resigned from that post because you thought, I believe uh, you said that what President Trump did or did not do that day was dereliction of duty.
11: Yeah, I didn't use the exact words, but I thought he failed at being the president, failed at leading the nation at a really critical time. I didn't think it was criminal. Um, I just, it did meet my sort of level of expectations from my boss. And the only thing you can do really in those circumstances is, is quit. So I, I, I did that. be curious to see tonight... If, if, if the committee is going to try and lay out a case that there was criminal activity or just dereliction of duty, those are really not exactly the same things. very difficult to prove that someone has committed a crime by doing nothing. I had thought, Jake, that as this was going through the, the hearings, that what they're going to try to do is draw a line from the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers into the Oval Office, either through Steve Bannon or through Michael Flynn or, or through Mark Meadows, to sort of get the president in on the, on the, judici- on the uh, seditious conspiracy. I don't think you're going to see that tonight. I think what you're hearing is they're going to focus on what he did during that 187 minutes. I'm not sure how that ties into the overall narrative. So will be very interested to see what happens tonight.
1: Um, and, and I want to start with your reaction to the videos that Congressman Kinzinger uh, put out on behalf of the committee uh, this morning. You saw uh, some of the individuals uh, testifying, basically talking about how Donald Trump was during that three hours and seven minutes in the dining room off the Oval Office, watching it on TV, not doing anything, even though... People were calling him, people were pleading him with him, please go to the, the press room and just tell them to stop, go on Twitter, tell them to stop, and, and he didn't.
11: Yeah, I was one of those people. I actually texted Mark Meadows and said, look, he needs to do something to stop this. Can I do anything to help? So I know there was a lot of folks. One of the things we have learned from the January 6th committee is that a lot of folks who are typically not very critical of the president— we're reaching out to Mark Meadows and directly to the president, saying you have to do something. And still, he didn't for uh, uh, more than three hours. Doesn't surprise me. He was watching television. It's right. how we spent a lot of the time. In fact, the TV in the dining room was—you can watch four channels at one time. That was the sort of the standard operating procedure back there. So, doesn't surprise me that he's watching television. Surprised me then. Surprised me now that he did nothing about it. Be curious to see again what sort of texture gets added to that tonight.
1: So we know that two former White House staffers are planning to testify, uh, the same ones that along with you, I think, you testified, did you, I'm sorry, resign on January
11: 6th? Yeah, that night I called Mike Pompeo and and actually sent my uh, resignation letter the next morning.
1: So Deputy National Security Advisor uh, Matt Pottinger did as well, Deputy Press Secretary Sarah Matthews did as well. Um, They resigned in protest. Um, you know them. I don't know them. W- what are they like? Yeah, well, I don't know Sarah.
11: Sarah got there after I left. She came in with okay. Kayleigh McEnany. Um, but I knew Matt, and Matt had been there since Robert O'Brien became the national security advisor. Matt, I'd be curious to see what he says, because Matt's uh, Matt's specialty is Asia and China. That's what he does. Yes, he was a deputy national security advisor, and it may be that he was filling in for Robert O'Brien on January 6th. Yeah, he wasn't there for some reason. I, I don't know what that would be, but it would be unusual for, for Matt to be in the Oval Office on sort of a regular basis. So I'd be curious not only to see... To, to hear tonight what he heard or saw himself, but why he was there. Because if it was just a mass of people in the Oval Office and people were coming and going, that could help contribute to sort of this, this sense of chaos inside the West Wing uh, on the, at, an, at critical times.
1: And when we were watching uh, the piece from Ryan, you noted uh, that we saw Trump's executive assistant, Molly Michael. We didn't know that she had testified Uh, in, you know, behind closed doors before uh, the committee. What can you tell us about her and the job she had as executive assistant?
11: Molly was a critical position. Molly ran sort of the the outer oval. Molly was the the person who sat at the desk outside of the Oval Office. You could not get into the Oval Office except through the back doors, which very few people use. But 95 percent of the people who would come into the Oval Office would walk right past Molly's desk. So she knew all the time who was in there. She usually knew who the president was on the phone with. If the doors opened, she could hear and see into the Oval Office. So again, I don't know what we'll see from her tonight. It would be obviously she's not testifying live, but if she's testifying on on video, be curious to see what she heard and saw because that's firsthand testimony. Keep in mind uh, a lot of what we heard from Cassidy Hutchinson, while very compelling and very credible, she admits the stuff that she heard from other people or she had. Well, other the people two big, the, yeah,
1: the, I mean the uh, the limo story, the SUV story, and the ketchup story were hearsay. Everything else she heard from people. Correct, but, but those it, two big stories were her hearsay. Yeah,
11: exactly. Molly will be in a position. Most of what Molly might testify to would be stuff that she had seen and heard herself because of where she physically sat.
1: Yeah. Lastly, I just want to get your response. The Wisconsin Assembly Speaker, Robin Voss, said Trump called him last week as part of a new effort to get him to decertify Wisconsin's electoral votes for Biden from 2020, from two years ago. Listen to what Voss told our uh, CNN affiliate WISN about that call.
5: He makes his case, which I respect. Um, He would like us to do something different in Wisconsin. I explained that it's not allowed under the Constitution. He has a different opinion. I mean,
11: yeah, here's here's my takeaway. I saw that. It scratched my head. I'm thinking myself because I understand a little bit about how a presidency works, how an Oval Office works, how the how the president thinks and so forth. Who's advising him? Who, who, who gave Donald Trump the idea, by the way, you can call Wisconsin today and they can undo what they did back in, in, in 2021? I, I don't I don't understand that. And I keep coming back to a, to a regular theme here. When Donald Trump started his presidency, he was advised by the former president of Goldman Sachs. He was a member of a former CEO of Exxon, was one of his cabinet members at the end. He had a bunch of crackpot lawyers and folks who were practicing law who were not lawyers. Peter Navarro apparently wrote like a 36-page memo on the legalities of the election. He's not even a lawyer. So at the end of the Trump administration, he's being advised by some very sketchy individuals. And it looks like he's still being advised by people who don't understand the law, because I'm not sure who told him not only this was a good idea, but that calling Wisconsin was even—having them
1: undo the election was even possible. It doesn't seem uh, particularly uh, sane, just as an observation. Anyway, Mick Mulvaney, thank you so much for for being here. Really appreciate it, as always. Coming up next, Steve Bannon passes on putting up any defense for his criminal case. Why would that be? Stay with us. And our politics lead, Steve Bannon just hours away now from having his fate in the hands of a jury. That's because his legal team today said that they were not going to put on a defense in his contempt of Congress trial for refusing to comply with a subpoena. From the January 6th Select House Committee, the jury will now hear closing arguments tomorrow and then they will start deliberating this after the prosecution rested its case after only two witnesses. Let's go right to Sarah Murray, who's outside the courtroom for us. Sarah, a very interesting decision from Bannon's legal team. How do they explain it?
13: Yeah, that's right. I mean, remember, Bannon said this was going to be the misdemeanor from hell. He said he was going to go medieval on his enemies. That's certainly not exactly what has been happening in the courthouse. They decided instead the defense was going to rest. They were not going to put forth any witnesses and they were not going to put Steve Bannon on the stand. As they were explaining their reasoning for this, which was when the jury was not in the room, they were again saying that they needed to call House Select Committee Chairman Benny Thompson in order to really make a case to make their defense. The judge has not allowed that. They also said that Steve Bannon and was eager to take the stand. But if he had done so, he would have explained that he was listening to the advice of his attorney, that he believed he had some kind of protection under executive privilege, which has been highly contested. And that's why he didn't show up. The judge is not allowing him to make those arguments. And so that is why they did not move forward with putting forward this defense.
1: All right, Sarah Murray, thank you so much. Uh, but but before, before, you, before you go, I do want to ask you one quick question. If he is found guilty, uh, and that's an if, we have no idea. How much time behind bars might he be looking at?
13: He's looking at a minimum of 30 days behind bars, but it's pretty clear from this that his lawyers intend to appeal. And because these are misdemeanor charges, there's a really good chance that Bannon will not end up serving that time while he is fighting a possible conviction while he goes through this appeals process, Jake.
1: All right, Sarah Murray, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Uh, Joining me now to talk about this and much more. Former D.C. police officer Michael Fanone, he was one of the heroes on January 6th who defended the Capitol as he was viciously attacked by members of the pro-Trump mob. I will note uh, he was in the same courthouse today giving a victim impact statement in the sentencing of one of the January 6th uh, defendants. Michael, we'll talk about tonight's hearing in a moment, but first, I just want to get your reaction. Um, Steve Bannon months ago was talking about this being a big case and he was going to you know, go medieval and everybody, and now they're not providing a defense and he's not going to take the stand.
15: Yeah, well, first, I think uh, he doesn't have much of a defense to put up. But uh, this also shows like how there's, you know, there's Steve Bannon, the person uh, who appears in the courtroom. And then there's Steve Bannon, the uh, entertainment media personality. And that's the guy that you see outside the courtroom and appears in his podcast and gives all of these, um, you know, flamboyant remarks uh, and whatnot. Uh, but uh, like you said with the uh, reporter just now, um, my assumption was that uh, he planned on appealing, and that's why he put forth no, uh, no defense. Um, the last time I had a case similar to that was in 2011. The defendant uh, did not put forth any defense uh, because of his intention to appeal. Um, fortunately, in that case, it was a felony charge, and he spent time in prison before his appeals were heard, but uh, in a misdemeanor case— I'm afraid that uh, Mr. Bannon will not be uh, incarcerated during Mm -hmm. that time.
1: Um, So let's talk about tonight. Uh, We're told that tonight's hearing is going to focus on the three hours and seven minutes where Donald Trump, uh, between his uh, leaving uh, the ellipse when he gave that speech and the time that he finally told the mob to to stop attacking law enforcement officers and vandalizing the Capitol, Um, here is a, a preview that the January 6th committee put out earlier today was the president in that private dining
16: room the whole time that the attack on the Capitol was going on or did he ever go
15: to again only to your knowledge to the Oval Office to the White House situation room anywhere else
13: so that's my recollection he was always in the dining room yeah
11: did, what did they say Mr. Meadows or the president at all during that brief encounter
2: that you were in the dining room what do you recall? I think they were everybody was watching the TV
1: So he was sitting there watching TV for the three hours and seven minutes while you and your brothers and sisters in blue were were being attacked. You said this is what you wanted to know. This was one of the main questions you wanted answered. So we're going to find out much more tonight. But you know that people were begging him and calling him. You just heard Mick Mulvaney said he texted. Tell him to stop it. Tell him to stop it. We know about all the texts from Fox personalities and the rest. What's your response?
15: I mean, it's clear to me that... uh former President Trump was derelict in his duty. Um, He failed to act. Uh, He had a responsibility to uh, ensure that um, this mob that he incited uh, was dispersed. And he should have been doing everything possible uh, to make sure that that happened, whether it was giving statements, whether it was providing federal support to the officers that were battling this mob. Uh, and it's clear from um, from what I've heard and and uh, what I've heard about, you know, what we're going to see tonight, that uh, that was not the case. And, it, and it actually the opposite, uh, that he enjoyed what he was watching. Um, so I, I look forward to uh, seeing evidence of that. So we know that one of his supporters was shot while trying to break break
1: into the speaker's gallery uh, or the House chamber. Rather, uh, three of his other supporters died during the attack. Officer Brian Sicknick of the Capitol Police uh, died immediately after the attack. Uh, And several other police officers there that day, um, presumably traumatized and suffering from post-traumatic stress or traumatic brain injury, uh, died by suicide. Uh, How much of that blood is on Donald Trump's hands, do you think?
15: I think he's responsible um, not only as the president, uh, the buck stops there, uh, but he's certainly responsible for this uh, seditious conspiracy that he brought about and uh, you know, directed at, um, at the American people.
1: Nearly a year ago, you testified before the committee in the country about what you endured, you and the other three officers that we've had on the show before, endured that day. You've been at every hearing the committee's held no, since here. then. Um, to sit with your fellow officers as you listen to the evidence, to support other witnesses who came forward, no. uh, we have seen at times uh, how difficult it's been for you and, and the Officer Hodges, Officer Dunn, Officer um, Gannell. does it get easier or harder reliving
15: that day? Um, I I would say that, uh, you know, for me, this whole experience, speaking out about what happened to me on January 6th, and then also talking about the bravery and courage and selflessness that I witnessed from other officers has been cathartic. Uh, attending these hearings, I mean, at times it's um, it's it's aggravating and uh, it's also infuriating. Uh, not you know just about the experience that I had on the sixth and and you know the assaults and um, you know the violence of that day, but watching so many American leaders who were so indifferent. To the brutality of what was occurring right before their very eyes—not just Trump, um, but you know all of these individuals in the in the White House at that time. Um, whether it was a low-level staffer all the way up, you know, I, I've heard some people have resigned, and and I give them credit for doing that. Uh, but some people, it's taken many, many, many months for them to come forward and talk about their experiences of how unhinged the president and the White House was during that time, um, and. That is the ultimate betrayal um, to someone who fought uh, so viciously uh, on that day uh, to be betrayed by so many Americans. Yeah. Well, we've heard a lot about the dereliction of duty of the police officers in Uvalde,
1: uh, Texas, who didn't do what they did. But you and your fellow officers, men and women, you held the line uh, and you protected so many lives. I can't even imagine what the day would have been like if you guys hadn't been doing what you were doing. So thank you, and thank you for being here as always. Good to see you. Thank you. Next, the sweltering heat waves across the globe in Athens, sparking dangerous wildfires while in the U.S. cities are scrambling to keep people cool and alive. In our world, at extreme temperatures this week gripping the globe. Wildfires breaking out in the Greek capital of Athens, tearing through residential neighborhoods and forcing thousands to flee. Europe is experiencing one of its hottest summers ever. And that brings us to our national lead, where those intense temperatures are having devastating effects here in the United States as well. More than 100 million people are living under extreme heat advisories in the United States. CNN's Ed Lavandera now reports.
17: More than 100 million Americans are under heat alerts in more than two dozen states. It's cold water. In Dallas, where temperatures have been in the hundreds this week, this homeless outreach group, Metro Relief, is handing out supplies and water to help the homeless stay clean and cool during the relentless heat, heat that can be deadly. Metro Relief, we know of two people that passed, heat exhaustion. This is the hottest it's been in a long time. Other parts of Texas are also scorching with heat advisories in effect for Austin and Houston, and the brutal weather is making it hard for firefighters to calm brush fires in North Texas. All of the trees on our property are just burnt to sticks. The Chalk Mountain fire continues to burn in Somerville County, destroying more than 6,000 acres. We had a, a beautiful homestead out there with a lot of different houses on it, and it all got burnt up in the matter of a few hours. In Phoenix, an excessive heat warning is in effect. The area is forecast to see temperatures up to 114 degrees, making it hard for people who have to work outside, like U.S. postal workers. They're working an average of 10, 12 hours a day in this heat. What I'm hearing is letter carriers are leaving because in the heat all day and night. Heat advisories are also in effect in Oklahoma City, Little Rock, Memphis, Jackson, New Orleans, and Birmingham, and along the East Coast, including Raleigh, Richmond. Philadelphia, Boston, Washington, DC, and New York.
3: Avoid going out in the peak hours, stay out of it, stay hydrated, keep your pets inside, check on your neighbors, uh, be aware of any other uh,
17: induced illnesses. The heat is the number one cause of weather deaths in the United States. That is why cities all across the country are setting up cooling stations.
12: It felt so good, it felt so good. I I can't be out in the heat too much because I get really nauseated and since we've been here
17: it's been really nice. The high temperatures are expected to linger. Around 275 million Americans are expecting to see a high above 90 degrees and more than 60 million people are expected to see a high at or above 100 degrees over the next seven days. And with much of the summer still ahead of us it's hard for some of the most vulnerable. It's hard because You don't have enough hotel rooms. Sometimes I think the heat's worse than the cold. So Jake, you know, we have so many cities across the country setting record high temperatures, but now we're seeing many of those cities also setting record high, low temperatures. So that means uh, for many people, millions of people across the country, they're not seeing temperatures below 85 or 80 degrees ever. 24 hours a day of relentless heat. And that's what makes all of this so punishing, Jake.
1: All right, Ed Lavendera, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Coming up next, Britain's foreign intelligence chief tells CNN he believes Russia is losing steam in Ukraine. What might that mean for Putin going forward? Stay with us. Now to our buried lead. Russia will, quote, run out of steam in its war against Ukraine. The head of MI6, Britain's foreign intelligence service, making that bold prediction to our own Jim Shudo at the Aspen Security Forum And revealing that Putin's ability to spy in Europe has been cut in half. Jim Schudo joins us now. Jim, this would be very promising news for Ukraine. If true, what else did the head of MI6 tell you about why he seemed so optimistic?
18: Well, Jake, this is the first time that the MI6 chief has ever done an interview like this before, and just scathing in his assessment of Russia's capabilities in Ukraine, saying that their intelligence services failed to recognize the strength of the Ukrainian resistance, saying that Russian forces are not showing themselves capable of taking much more ground there and holding it, but also saying that Putin has, in the words of the MI6 chief, had epic fails in all of his strategic objectives. Have a listen.
19: He had three things he wanted. One was to remove uh, Zelensky, mm-hmm. second uh, was to capture Kyiv, uh, and second was to uh, sow disunity within the NATO alliance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So on all of those, I think they count as epic fails. So I think he has suffered a strategic failure in, uh, in Ukraine. It's obviously not over. He's obviously made, and the Russian forces have made, some incremental pro- progress over recent uh, weeks and months. but you have, it's tiny amounts, and mm-hmm. we're talking about a small number of miles of advance, and when they take a town, there's nothing left of it, Jim. Yeah. I mean, it is obliterated. It's- so, uh, and I think
18: they're about to run out of steam. Run out of steam. In fact, he believes that Russian forces will have to take another pause in their military operations there, and that that will give, in his view, Ukrainian forces the opportunity to potentially take back ground.
1: And Jim, the MI6 chief also weighed in on CIA director William Burns saying there's no evidence that Putin is suffering from serious ill health. Uh, Does the MI6 chief agree? He said exactly in those terms. And as you know,
18: British and U.S. intelligence share intelligence under the Five Eyes program. He said there is no evidence to indicate that. And when I pressed him to say, well, how much do you really know about what's going on inside the Kremlin? He said, listen, we, we got our prediction right of when and how Russia was
1: going to invade Ukraine. He seemed to be letting on that they know something. Hmm. Fascinating stuff. Jim Shuda, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate thanks. it. Coming up next, what was President Trump doing for three hours and seven minutes while the Capitol was being attacked? The January 6th committee returns to prime time tonight, and they say they have some of the answers. Stay with us. Welcome to The Lead, I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, President Biden tested positive for COVID. The 79-year-old in a video says he's doing well and it's going to be okay. What are doctors keeping an eye on? Plus, drone warfare. After months of fighting, Ukraine racing to replenish this crucial piece of technology. And we now have a never-before-seen look at these high-tech weapons and how they're being used. And leading this hour, the January 6th committee returns to prime time. In just hours, the panel promises to present its most compelling evidence to date of Donald Trump's dereliction of duty, detailing the three-plus hours that Trump failed to act while the United States Capitol was under attack. Earlier today, Republican committee member Congressman Adam Kinzinger released this video, clips of Trump aides describing what the president was doing as the violence unfolded.
15: Was the president in that private dining room the whole time that the attack on the Capitol was going on, or did he ever go again, only to your knowledge, to the Oval Office, to the White House Situation Room, anywhere else?
13: To best of my recollection, he was always in the dining room.
15: Yeah. What did they say, Mr. Meadows or the president,
2: at all during that brief encounter that you were in the dining room? What do you? I think they were. Everybody was watching the TV.
10: Do you know whether? He was watching TV in the dining room when uh, you talked
6: to him on January 6. Um, it's my understanding he was watching television. When you
11: were in the dining room in these discussions,
19: was the uh, was the, the violence capital visible on the screen on the, on the television?
1: Yes. Right. One woman you saw in those clips is Molly Michael. She was Trump's executive assistant. We did not previously know she had testified before the committee. Let's start with our politics lead and Manu Raju, who's on Capitol Hill for us. Manu, what more are you learning about what we can expect tonight at this hearing?
12: Yeah, a minute-by-minute minute recount of sorts from the time that Donald Trump left the Ellipse after he gave that speech, saying to his uh, supporters to go to the Capitol, and then ultimately when he finally said something to his supporters from the time about 1 p.m. on that afternoon of January 6th to about 4:17 p.m. The committee is going to piece together what happened behind the scenes at the White House. Put those showing those video depositions that are from people who were serving in the White House at the time, people uh, such as the former uh, the. Vice President Mike Pence's National Security Advisor Keith Kellogg, as well as Pat Cipollone, the White House Counsel. You mentioned Molly Michael, an executive assistant for Donald Trump, who we did not know had previously testified. Also, Ivanka Trump, who has been featured before, Expect to hear what she had to say again. Now, we also hear live witness testimony from two key White House aides, Sarah Matthews, who worked in the press shop, as well as Matthew Pottinger, Deputy National Security Advisor. We'll hear live testimony from them. And, Jake, this is, of course, all part of this effort previous hearings showing Donald Trump responsible for the run-up to January 6. Today, what happened on January 6, and what Donald Trump did and did not do.
1: We've been learning that the committee has and plans to show outtakes of Trump trying to tape a message to his supporters the day after the insurrection. What more can you tell us about that?
12: Yeah, this this is, will be a significant part of the testimony tonight. The committee has indeed obtained these outtakes from Donald Trump's speech on January 7th. And what the committee members are saying is that this will show how far Donald Trump was willing to go and what he re- simply refused to say despite urging uh, comments potentially about suggesting the election was settled or, ta- or repudiating the violence that day. The committee members are going to say that this is will show how uh, revealing it is about what Donald Trump was going to say, according to the words of Adam Schiff, who's a member of the committee, he said it will be significant in terms of what the president was willing to say and what he was not willing to say. know, he went on to say, Adam Schiff did, that there are things he can't be prevailed upon to do and say not for hours and hours and hours. And then ultimately, he gave a statement, which in Adam Schiff's view, did not go far enough.
1: Right. Okay. Monty Roger, thanks so much. Let's uh, bring in a member of the House Select Committee on January 6th, Congresswoman Stephanie Murphy, Democrat of Florida. Congresswoman, thanks so much for joining us. Let's start with these video outtakes of Trump's message to his supporters taped on January 7th. We're told that Trump refused to say that the election results had been settled. He attempted to call the rioters patriots. Um, have you seen these outtakes? How would you describe them?
6: Well, I'm not going to spoil the uh, hearing tonight out of respect for my colleagues. What I think we should focus on and look for tonight, though, is the contrast between the two um, members of the select committee who are both people who have sworn the oath um, while they were in uniform, as well as as um, members of Congress to uphold the Constitution against uh, threats foreign and domestic. We'll see a contrast to what they did um, and what they're doing right now and what the president did on um, January 6th Um, as commander-in-chief. Did he uphold his constitutional oath to defend this country as the U.S. Capitol was under attack?
1: You're referring, of course, to uh, Congressman Adam Kinzinger, a Republican of Illinois uh, who served with the Air Force, and Congresswoman Elaine Luria, a Democrat of Virginia, who served with the Navy, uh, I believe. Kinzinger put out uh, some video uh, from your committee Uh, And we learned from that that Donald Trump's executive assistant, Molly Michael, who I think might even still be working with him down in Mar-a-Lago, that she testified before the committee. Are there any other unexpected witnesses or evidence that will be presented at the hearing tonight?
6: Well, Jake, I have to say that we've been full of surprises in these hearings. And so um, I think there will be uh, footage and information that the American people haven't seen before. Um, But uh, that's why everyone should tune in tonight at prime time to see uh, the final hearing in this series Um, and to kind of see what we know about what was happening in the White House. Um, As we have done in previous hearings, we'll take people inside the room and um, give them different perspectives on the advice the president was given, given, and then how he received that advice and what he did or did not do.
1: You say this is the final hearing in this series. What exactly does that mean? Uh, I, I've been told that you're probably going to have a hearing when you present your report. Is it possible that we'll, there will be other hearings beyond
6: that? You know, this investigation has been really fluid in that... Um, every time there is a courageous witness who comes forward, it inspires other people to come forward and share with us what they know about what happened in the run-up to and on January 6th. And so we are continually gathering information, and when it is appropriate, as it was with, say, Cassidy Hutchinson, we will call a hearing and present that information. We also anticipate that we will be calling hearings to present um, information around uh, some of our recommendations. This is not the last hearing. Um, It's not the last that you're going to be hearing from this committee, as it is very much ongoing and collecting new and important information that needs to be shared with the American people.
1: You mentioned Cassidy Hutchinson. After her, on the record, sworn testimony, uh, there were whispers from the U.S. Secret Service that uh, former White House Deputy Chief of Staff Tony Renato, who serves with the Secret Service, uh, would be willing to testify under oath uh, that um, the story that she says he told her about Trump lunging uh, uh, towards his Secret Service agent, that he would, he would dispute it. Uh, Has the Secret Service reached out? Are they willing to testify to that under oath? My understanding is that what Renato said behind closed doors um, in, test- in, in his previous testimony was basically a bunch of I don't recalls when asked about that.
6: We have yet to um, have them uh, under oath. But what I will say here is that Cassidy Hutchinson was a very courageous uh, young woman who came forward and told under oath what she saw. And what is not disputed is that the president wanted to go to the Capitol. He knew his supporters were armed and he wanted to lead them to the Capitol. How he expressed that to his um, Secret Service, you know, is between the handful of people who were in that car But it's kind of irrelevant. The fact is that he wanted to go to the Capitol. And then the other thing I will say is that all of these men who will whisper in the ears of journalists and in the media but not go on the record with their name or on the record or under oath do not have the same courage that Cassidy Hutchinson has displayed. And we would welcome from them having them come under oath and provide a different perspective. But what they have yet to do is to uh, counter the narrative that we've heard from multiple witnesses, which is that the president wanted to go to the Capitol.
1: CNN uh, has learned that the Department of Homeland Security Inspector General has told the Secret Service that they're investigating what happened to those text messages from January 5th and 6th that have been deleted as an ongoing criminal investigation. That's how... Uh, The DHS inspector general describes it. The committee had requested Secret Service text messages, those same ones. Will this criminal investigation interfere with your request for the messages?
6: I certainly hope not. I think we have parallel but complementary efforts. We are seeking to get all of the information as a legislative body so that we can present it to the American people and so that we can create recommendations about how law enforcement can better interact with each other. But what I will say is that it is deeply disturbing that a law enforcement agency did not understand the critical need to preserve evidence on a day as uh, monumental as january 6 was on a day where they were charged with the security of the president and the vice president and that the vice president's detail had to flee and find a safe and secure place for their principal and yet still they didn't recognize that that was a day of significance where the information and the evidence needed to be preserved
1: so you buy that it was incompetence not malevolence
6: I think we need more information to determine uh, the intent and exactly what happened, and I'm um, intent on getting all of that data so that we can make a determination, and I'm glad to see that the inspector general and DHS are also taking this seriously as well as the national archives to get the information they need, and we will all play the role that we um, are authorized to do so to get all of this information, Um, but this is too important to let it slide, whether it was incompetent or um, nefarious malfeasance.
1: Congresswoman Stephanie Murphy, thanks so much for your time today. Good luck at your hearing this evening. President Biden releases a new video after his COVID diagnosis and tells the public to, quote, keep the faith. The latest update from the White House on the 79-year-old president's condition, plus drone warfare on the front lines in Ukraine. CNN gets a never-before-seen look at some of these weapons. Stay with us. We are back with our politics lead, three hours and seven minutes. That will be the focus of tonight's hearing in the January 6th committee, the period of time from when the Capitol riot began to when Donald Trump finally released a video telling the MAGA mob to go home. It starts at 1.10 p.m. That's when Trump told the crowd at the Ellipse to march on the Capitol. Former White House aide Cassidy Hutchinson testified that Donald Trump then got into his motorcade, and according to Secret Service agents, angrily tried to convince his drivers to take him to the Capitol, which they refused. Trump returned to the White House by 119, where staffers testified he watched the insurrection unfold live on TV. Rioters had already breached the Capitol when Trump tweeted an attack on Vice President Mike Pence at 2.24 p.m. Six minutes later, the vice president and lawmakers were evacuated from the chambers. Trump then tweeted again, telling rioters to, quote, stay peaceful, but he did not encourage them to leave the Capitol. Soon after, House Republican leader Kevin McCarthy urged Trump to call off the mob, tell them to leave. Trump, however, sided with the rioters, telling Kevin McCarthy perhaps they cared about the election more than he did. At 3.13, Trump again tweeted that his supporters should remain peaceful, but he did not say they should leave the Capitol. Until finally, he tweeted out a video at 4.17 p.m. telling rioters to go home while praising the men and women who had assaulted police and vandalized the Capitol. They dutifully obliged. Let's discuss. Sungmin, let me start with you. Tonight's hearing is expected to include testimony from people who spoke to Trump on January 6th, as well as people who were in the West Wing that day. We know Sarah Matthews and Matt Pottinger from the National Security Council are going are to talk about why they resigned in, in anger and disappointment that day. How damning do you think this could be for Donald Trump?
9: It could be pretty bad, depending on the actual information that we see, because we've seen a lot of previews of this hearing coming from members of the select committee, and they are already making the case to us that during those 187 minutes, while we see the awful images unfold on television, Donald Trump did nothing. We saw a little bit of the preview coming from Adam Kinzinger this morning. You had a testimony from members of the White House saying that while this was going on, you could see the images on TV, but Donald Trump stayed in the dining room and basically did nothing. So I would love to hear. I think we're all looking um, to see what kind of details Matt Pottinger and Sarah Matthews provide and kind of backing up just how resistant uh, President Trump was to doing something that in those hours.
1: And Alyssa Farah, as the former communications director, uh, you were one of the people... Texting people in the White House, telling the President to, pl- telling them to tell the President, please you know, tell them tell to tell the crowd to go away. Tell us about Matt Pottinger and, and Sarah Matthews. I don't know them uh, at all. What, are they? Do you think that they're going to be credible with the Republican audience?
10: They will be. And I think it was uh, it was smart planning to pair these two together. So Matt Pottinger is someone who has enormous credibility in the national security community on a bipartisan basis. He was the Wall Street Journal, Beijing bureau uh, Bureau chief at one point, a Marine Corps veteran. On the flip side, Sarah Matthews is a tried and true Republican. She was on the Trump campaign, handpicked by Kayleigh McEnany to come to the White House. So you can't write her off as a rhino and a never trump and they were both I mean, both there- I can't. They'll still try. They will, say they will it, still try. They
1: say it about Mitt Romney
10: that, that is and Liz true. Cheney. That is true. But um, they both are going to bring the credibility of being senior officials who are working in the West Wing that day. Matt being the most senior NSC official on staff, he's going to be able to talk about the threat environment and what he was warned about, what weapons might have been being brought to the Capitol, what the crowds were looking like that were amassing she's going to be able to talk about the efforts to get Trump to say something and what he was and wasn't willing to say. So I'm going to be paying attention to the word about, like, peaceably assembling. Was he willing to say that? Was he willing to call off the mob? It seems very clear he wasn't, but she's going to be able to walk through that TikTok.
1: So um, uh, let, me, let me ask you, Carrie. Uh, we had uh, Mick Mulvaney on earlier, and he said that he thought what Donald Trump did, former acting White House Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney, was, was a dereliction of duty. But he didn't know if, if that was a crime. Mm-hmm. Is it a crime? And and if so, what does the committee have to show that Donald Trump did or did not do? I
3: I think there's arguments that could be made that uh, he was potentially obstructing justice. But I don't think this hearing is about establishing criminal culpability as it relates to dereliction of duty. I think that the uh, arguments regarding what he did that day pertain to his role as commander-in-chief, where he completely failed to protect the Capitol and the lawmakers and the law enforcement and the staff who were on the premises, Um, his inability to marshal the resources of the federal government to respond to what was an emergency situation that potentially uh, obstructed the, the work of Congress and the functioning of the Constitution. But I don't think that unlike some of the work that the committee has done in the prior hearings that really, I think, did go a longer way in potentially exposing him from a criminal perspective. I think this is more about his uh, potential for future leadership as a political leader. And what will come out of tonight will just reinforce much of what was described in the second impeachment hearing, which is his incompetence and his dereliction to his duties as commander in chief and, and president.
1: And speaking of criminal intent, uh, listen to Attorney General Mayor Garland uh, when asked about the possibility of charging a former president with a crime,
11: no person is above the law in this country. Nothing stops us. Even a former president. No, I don't know how to. Maybe I'll say that again. No person is above the law in this country. I can't say it any more clearly than that.
20: Listen, you know, this is a big discussion about whether or not uh, the Justice Department will actually act. The committee has said they're not sure about whether or not they're actually going to refer him to uh, the the Justice Department for prosecution, although they seem to agree that he did break the law. We've seen so far uh, no one around him has really been charged with any crimes other than people who failed to... uh, to cooperate with the committee. Obviously, about 800 people, I think, have been charged. 50, I think, have pled guilty or something like that to to felony charges. But this would be unprecedented, right, to charge a former president uh, with a crime. This is a country that hasn't typically done that, hasn't ever done that. Uh, But it's also a country that hasn't seen a former president uh, or or, or sitting president uh, try to overthrow the government to cling to power uh, through violence. And so we'll see what Merritt Garland will do. But you have seen progressives think that he has not moved uh, swiftly enough in directing uh, his firepower at the former president.
1: Are you surprised that we haven't seen more a clear line from the White House to the intermediaries like Stone and Flynn to the far right militias like the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys? I mean, obviously, there's a lot of circumstantial evidence. There's a lot of smoke. Right. But I thought we'd have more fire by now.
9: Right, and I think it's interesting. Just um, some of the some of the connections are precisely that. It's it's a little tenuous. It's a little circumstantial. That direct line that you would kind of need from people inside the West Wing, inside the White House, to these far right groups and whatnot. That is a specific connection that ha- we haven't explicitly seen laid out. And I think that's something that perhaps um, people in the legal field would want to see um, before they take any action. But it is there is a lot of like kind of. Sometimes a little wink, wink, nudge, nudge here, but that specific evidence as to that point, um, I think that's still something that we're still looking well, for. Well, that was the that was the piece that I was expecting to see in the last hearing yeah. that I right. don't
3: really think yeah. that we did. Um, the closest we got was Representative Raskin. Saying that the committee has in its possession hundreds of other text messages that potentially were between or, or, uh, encrypted messages, some type of messaging, communications between, um, individuals like Stone and Mike Flynn and the leaders of the domestic violent groups. And, but the committee has not released those. And so if there is one more set of, uh, evidence or pieces of information it's that. Well, and, and, oh, go and, ahead. While, while the committee's
10: done I think a masterful job of laying out this case to this point. At the same time they are only scratching the surface of what they could potentially find related to this. They've obviously not gotten Mark Meadows under oath. They haven't. They just recently got Pat Cipollone under oath. They didn't know that Cassie Hutchinson existed as a potential, you know, serious witness to be for bring forward until very recently. So I think there's a lot more that could come out and the committee's been adamant like our work isn't over. There's likely going to be more hearings. But this also should be something the Department of Justice is looking for.
1: And one thing that is really interesting to me is one of the reasons the committee wasn't aware of how powerful witness Cassidy Hutchinson would be until relatively recently is because she had a different attorney. Mm -hmm. Right. One that was being paid for by the Trump world. Yeah. Uh, And Daily Beast had a story today about how Trump is paying for the lawyers of a lot of these witnesses. Um, And I certainly have questions about whether or not these lawyers are completely only solely allegiant to the witnesses or if they're also sharing stuff with the Trump world. We saw that that message uh, threatening witness intimidation message Mm -hmm. Liz Cheney shared. About That's how Donald right. Trump's reading the transcripts. Yeah,
20: reading the transcripts, the idea that he contacted one or tried to, and, and then the person uh, told the, the committee this. So there is that sense of that, that there is sort of witness tampering uh, going on. No silver uh, bullet yet in terms of necessarily uh, nailing that as a, as a case to Donald Trump. But yeah, I mean, this sort of idea of loyalty and staying true to Donald Trump has certainly affected the way this hearing has gone and the information that this committee has.
1: All right. Great panel. Thanks so much, one and all, for being here. President Biden tested positive for COVID today. What the White House is now saying about how the 79-year-old is doing so far. Internationally, President Biden is isolating in the White House residents after having tested positive for coronavirus earlier today. The president put out this message on Twitter, assuring the American people he is
2: doing peachy. This morning I tested positive for COVID but I've been double vaccinated, double boosted, symptoms are mild, and, uh, and I really appreciate your inquiries and your concerns, but I'm doing well. I'm getting a lot of work done. I'm going to continue to get it done, and, uh, and in the meantime, thanks for your concern, and keep the faith. It's going to be okay.
1: President Biden is being treated with the antiviral drug Paxlovid, or Paxlovid, uh, recommended for people who are at high risk of se- severe illness. Uh, such as people in their 70s. Joining us now, CNN medical analyst Dr. Jonathan Reiner. He advised the White House medical unit under President George W. Bush. Dr. Reiner, good to see you. So he's turning 80 in November. I hate to, I hate to, you know, yeah. keep talking about this, but that's a danger zone. That's where most of the people who have died of COVID uh, have been in a uh, 70 and above.
21: Right. That's the highest. That's the highest risk group, and that's the group that. Uh, we have not done a great job boosting in this country. Only uh, oh, really? 22% of people over the age of 65 have gotten uh, two booster shots.
1: We should know Biden is double boosted. He's, he just, the second booster was in March.
21: Right. And for that reason, his, his illness will likely be mild. The vaccines have changed the, the course of this illness from a, a disease that largely... Uh, infected the lower respiratory tract, the lungs, and created pneumonia, and that's how people died, to much more of an upper respiratory tract I- infection, which mimics, you know, symptoms of, of a cold. So the fact that the president is doubly vaccinated and doubly boosted very strongly suggests that his core should be relatively mild. Plus, they're treating him with Paxlovid.
1: Yeah, and so, so you're saying that what the, the vaccines do is they, they just kind of, like, move, they make it less severe, and instead of having trouble with your lungs, right. it's more like you're just congested in your, in your nose and your throat.
21: And, and that, that's what the course is for almost everyone who is fully vaccinated, who is not immunocompromised f- for some other reason, which is why the mortality rate for a vaccinated person is, is, is very, very low. You get into trouble with this virus when your lungs become infected. And that sets in cycle a whole cascade of, of systemic responses that can kill you. When this stays in your nose and you have a runny nose and a little bit of a sore throat, it runs its course, you know, in a week and and you do well.
1: Yeah. I mean, I'll just say for anybody out there who's not boosted or vaccinated, uh, I have a a loved one who is a senior who got COVID very early and it was really bad, really bad, Uh, fine now, but really bad then. And I have another one who got COVID recently, double vaxxed, double boosted, Mild symptoms, almost nothing.
21: Right. It's, a, it's, a, it's imperative uh, to do that. And there's some recent data that, that really shows the impact. If you are doubly vaccinated and with one booster shot, you have four times higher risk of mortality than if you've had two booster shots. So even if you've been boosted once, it's not enough. Go ahead and get the second booster.
1: I want to show you something because First Lady Jill Biden attended an, a, an event in a school in, in Detroit earlier today. And you can see... Uh, from the pictures. Let's bring that up. She, She's, uh, well, that's uh, that's Biden. That's not the, the video I'm talking about. Um, there she is. And she's she's wearing one of those kind of like cheap surgical masks that you get, you know, for free if you go to a CVS yeah. and they, or someplace. She's not wearing an N95. I mean, there are much more intense masks. It looks like the guy next to her is wearing a cloth mask. Although oh, right. I'm going from a picture. I could be wrong. I mean, shouldn't she be wearing an N95? Don't we know so much more about masking now? I don't mean to pick on the first lady, but shouldn't she be... Don't we know that the N95s are so much more effective?
21: I think everybody should be wearing N95. Right, not just her, of course. You know, they went from this sort of exotic, uh, rare, uh, hard-to-find item to much more wide, widely available. And an N95 mask will protect you in a very heavily laden viral environment. It's what we wear in the hospital. And if you have a tight-fitting N95 mask, even if you're in very close contact to someone who's infected, and if, even if you're in contact with them for a long period of time— you are unlikely uh, to get this disease. But you don't see many people who aren't somehow involved in medicine uh, wearing them. I I certainly think the the leaders of our country and their families should be wearing them. I think all Americans should be wearing them. One of the questions I've asked this week is, what have we done to change the manufacturing capacity in the United States? What we found out in the early... uh, Months of, of COVID was that we didn't have the manufacturing ability to to create enough N95 masks for this country. Has that changed over the past couple of years? I don't, I don't know.
1: Yeah. Um, I mean, the First Lady, uh, she looks 40, but she's not. So she right. probably should be wearing a better mask. Dr. Dr. Reiner, thank you so much right. for, for joining us. Uh, really appreciate it. Also, today, the House of Representatives passed a bill that would guarantee access to contraception in the United States because of fears of a Pending Supreme Court ruling otherwise, although we don't know of any case that way. But Justice Clarence Thomas did suggest that the Supreme Court should reconsider a previous ruling, Griswold versus Connecticut, which guaranteed the right to buy and use contraception uh, without government restriction. Uh, only eight Republicans joined the Democrats in the House to support the bill. Uh, it is unclear whether that bill will have enough to pass The Senate, though, again, I should point out, there is no current Supreme Court case that would be relevant to removing the right to contraception. Coming up next, Russia's war in Ukraine, fueled by Europe's dependence on Russian gas. We'll tell you how. Stay with us. Tonight in our world lead, drone warfare in Ukraine. The West continuing its efforts to arm Ukrainian forces. The United Kingdom says hundreds more drones and anti-tank weapons are on the way. This as Russia is making its own use of stolen stolen Western technology in their own drones to target Ukrainian forces. Nick Robertson has a never-before-seen look inside some of these weapons.
19: Away from the front lines, technical intel officer Maxim, not his real name, strips down a captured Russian all 10 surveillance drone. We are the first journalists. They are showing how Russia is using Western tech to kill Ukrainian troops. This circuit board that can pinpoint cell phones is even maybe more dangerous than the camera. The cell phone tracker, he says, made in the USA. The engine made in Japan. And the thermal imager module on the camera, he claims, was made in France after Russia invaded. Drones like this one are a terror on the battlefield and are revolutionising the way war is being fought. But the battle over control of components inside of them is almost as important as the supply of new rockets and artillery. At the front lines, Ukrainian soldiers fear Russian drones and celebrate and share what they call successful hits. Kyiv's military intelligence say the drone's powerful cameras, with thermal and infrared imaging and cell phone tracking, are making it easier for Russia to kill Ukrainian soldiers.
7: From a UAV
19: or a drone identifying a Ukrainian target, it can be three to four minutes for the Russians to engage them. So French lens, Japanese engine, US-made GSM parts... What other countries' uh, components go in here? The list, Maxime says, is long, includes Austria, Germany, Taiwan, the Netherlands. His job, follow every serial number, find out who made it, and tell allies to figure out how to stop Russia's drone techs getting their hands on it. But stopping supply of these often commercial components won't be easy. Russia may have huge stockpiles and has a long history evading controls.
7: The FBI has been
19: tracking down Russian supply networks since 2014 and trying to close them down. So if they can, they will continue trying to sidestep it. And it is a real problem because often these are be bought by legitimate companies. That Ukrainian intelligence officials have gone public with their frustrations that their allies' tech is ending up in Russia's hands is an indication of just how deadly and decisive Russia's drones have become. And you have President Zelensky on, uh, you have President Zelensky this evening saying on television that he believes that Ukraine can start to take territory back from the Russian forces. They've now got the HIMARS uh, missile systems that can target ammunition dumps uh, deep inside Russian territory. But to turn around the fighting on the front line, the Ukrainians really believe is going to take getting those drones uh, out of the skies so that their troops just not as vulnerable as they are right now, Jake.
1: All right, Nick Robertson live for us in Kyiv, Ukraine. Thank you so much. Russia is largely able to continue its war against the Ukrainian people, thanks to all the countries who pay the country, Russia, for its natural gas. After a temporary pause, gas is flowing back to Europe once again, at least for now. The Nord Stream 1 pipeline under the Baltic Sea is back to delivering gas at about 40% capacity after having to shut down for 10 days for maintenance. There is great concern from Europe, especially Germany, over the limited gas supply. Of course, Germany is dependent upon Russia for its energy. Let's bring in CNN's Fred Pleiken to explain more. Fred, Germany's dependence on Russian gas is one of the reasons that Putin has funding for his war in Ukraine. Is the German government attempting
7: anything to, to stop this? Well, they certainly are, but they also seem to have come to the realization, Jake, that they're not going to be able to get off Russian gas anytime soon, or even in the, in the sort of medium term future, even though they are trying. As you just mentioned, the Nord Stream 2 pipeline now going at about 40% capacity, and the Germans are saying that's not going to be enough for, uh, f- for the amount of gas that they believe they need to get through the winter, because they are still so dependent on Russian gas. They want to fill up their gas storage facilities to 95% come November 1st, and essentially they say the way that they're going to be hopefully able to do that is by relying more on coal, which means putting coal-fired power plants back online, and quite frankly, asking Germans, the industry, German population, and then also, of course, the public to, uh, to just use less energy so that they need less energy for gas. But really, um, they understand that at this point in time, it's going to be very difficult for them to get off the Russian gas uh, anytime soon, Jake.
1: Fred, the Germans believe that Russia is using energy to blackmail them. Are there any signs that that blackmail is working?
7: Yes, I would say I would say certainly so. And, you know, one of the things that that's been so interesting, the Nord Stream 1 pipeline uh, was under maintenance for 10 days. This was regular scheduled maintenance. And if you look at what was going on in German media, but also in the German public and in politics, Some of it can almost be described as panic as the Germans waiting to see whether or not that pipeline was actually going to be back online because they are so dependent on that Russian gas. And there are some German politicians, and this goes all the way up to what in the U.S. would be state governors who are calling for a softening of sanctions against Russia to ensure that Russia keeps sending gas to Germany. Now, we have to point out That is not the position of the German government, but there certainly already is some backlash here in this country and it is making it quite difficult uh, for the German government as well, who again is still saying that they are very much uh, going to hold on to the sanctions and wanna see all of this through until the Ukrainians uh, manage to to drive the Russians from their land. But the Germans certainly, this has to be said, really are experiencing a rude awakening right now and really finding themselves, as they put it themselves, very much at the mercy of the Kremlin. Jake. All right, Fred
1: Pleikin in Berlin. Thank you so much. Coming up next, new CNN reporting on why the U.S. military is concerned about Speaker Pelosi's possible trip to Taiwan. Stay with us. In our world lead, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi was pressed by reporters about her potential trip to Taiwan at her weekly press conference today. Pelosi said she won't discuss her travel plans because it is a security issue. But she did offer speculation about President Biden's comments regarding the U.S. military's opposition toward any potential trip to Taiwan.
6: I think what the president was saying is the, maybe the military was afraid our plane would get shot down or something like that by the Chinese. I don't know exactly. I didn't see it. I didn't hear it. You're telling me and I've heard it anecdotally, but um, I haven't heard it from the president.
1: Meanwhile, China has warned that it would take, quote, resolute and forceful measures if Speaker Pelosi visits Taiwan. Let's bring in CNN's Barbara Starr to further explain the importance of all this. Barbara, what exactly is the U.S. military concerned about if Speaker Pelosi does, in fact, go to Taiwan?
16: Well, Jake, underline all of this is there's been a significant rise in tensions between the U.S. and China over the Taiwan question. Of course, if Taiwan were ever to declare independence, which it has not, that could be a trigger for some kind of Chinese military action. That is what the Chinese do not want. Now, some officials are telling R. Atwood that there's some concern if Pelosi, someone of her stature, were to go it will raise tensions and the chinese could do something like establish a no-fly zone make it very difficult for pelosi to actually travel by airplane and land in taiwan one of the key questions i think is what the chinese intentions really are the chinese are making it clear they are opposed they are concerned they have a lot of anxiety about what they see as the u.s siding with taiwan for the on this part of the u.s uh, no one is actually saying they briefed Pelosi on the risks of going to Taiwan, but it is something the U.S. military typically will do of her, somewhat of her stature. They will tell her what the risks and benefits are of such a trip. Jake.
1: And President Biden uh, gave a sharp warning to China during his trip to Asia back in May, saying the U.S. would intervene militarily. Should China attack Taiwan? The White House, of course, went on to back, you know, walk back those comments. This week, Biden confirmed he's going to speak to President Xi Jinping within the next 10 days. How tense are relations between the U.S. and China right now?
16: Well, they are, but I would say uh, cautiously tense, if you will. I don't think anyone thinks the Chinese are about to invade. That is not really the question on the table at the moment by all accounts. What is concerning to the U.S. is the Chinese are developing a military capacity and capability both at sea and in the air. More weapons, more modern weapons, more ships, more submarines, more fighter aircraft, more missiles all the things that they would need in the future if President Xi were to make a decision to move militarily against Taiwan. Uh, Chinese policy is clear that they want Taiwan at some point. Xi, if he's a rational actor, the U.S. believes would want to do it peacefully. But the concern is Chinese, China is building that military capacity just in case they want it. Jake?
1: All right, Barbara Starr, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Coming up, demanding action at the White House. The families of wrongfully detained Americans sharing an urgent plea for President Biden. Stay with us. Time now for today's Buried Lead. That's what we call stories we don't think are getting enough attention. The families of wrongfully detained Americans abroad met outside the White House today. They demanded action and attention for the dire cases of their loved ones. These families say they need President Biden directly involved or nothing will happen. They're begging anyone in in the Biden administration to please just meet with them. The demonstration comes a day after the unveiling of a new mural in Washington, D.C., which shows the faces of these missing family members. Here is a plea today from the mural's artist.
17: So I'm going to issue a challenge to anyone in the administration. The mural is just blocks away over in Georgetown. It's not that long of a drive. You can ride a bike there. Go see it. And and look into the eyes of these American citizens, uh, many of whom who have served our country, especially like Matthew Heath. It's time that the country serves its citizens, especially those who have been wrongfully detained and held hostage abroad.
1: The group says the loved ones for whom they're fighting have collectively lost 90 years of their lives by being wrongfully detained. I'll be back with our special coverage of the January 6th hearing starting in just an hour. Our coverage continues now with Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. See you in an hour.
0: When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness